Welcome to Planet Water, a podcast that explores the cutting edge of how water impacts every stage of how we live our lives, from our physical and mental health to overall well-being. Planet Water is brought to you by Sweden's Blue Water, a water company that's on a mission to end the need for single-use plastic water bottles and the threat they pose to human, ocean and planetary health. Greetings and welcome to episode four of Planet Water, a podcast about healthy water, mindful hydration for body and mind, and sustainability from Blue Water, a purpose-driven Swedish company. In a short while, we'll be talking to Sarah Cooley, Director of Climate Science at Ocean Conservancy. Sarah combines her science and communication skills to educate and engage decision makers and stakeholders from every political perspective on ocean acidification, identifying ways that different groups can take action. Bearing in mind our mission to end the need for the single-use plastic bottles that are killing our oceans, we're pleased that Sarah agreed to share some of her knowledge, hopes and dreams about returning the oceans to health. I'm Dave Noble, Communications Director at Blue Water, and my purpose is to help us all take a deeper look at all things water. From the way water keeps us healthy, improving physical and mental performance, to the multiple threats posed by chemical and plastic pollution and water scarcity being sparked by climate change and ever greater urbanization. At Blue Water, we care about what goes into our oceans because we care about what goes into our bodies when drinking or washing with water. We've put banishing single-use plastics at the very heart of our business mission with ingenious, planet-friendly water purification, dispensing and bottle solutions to generate and serve pure water at home, work and when on the go. Blue water purification products remove over 99% of all known contaminants from lead to chemicals and microplastics and are available in major markets globally for a healthier planet. If you want to dive deeper into the effects of water on your body and mind, wellness and well-being, mobility, mental and physical performance, and get answers to simple yet vital questions on stuff like how much you should drink each day and when, you'll find answers on the Blue Water website, www.bluewatergroup.com. Discover what's in your water that shouldn't be there, and learn about the tech available to clean what you're putting into your body in a wide range of educational white papers and gutsy information sheets. We even give you a whole bunch of recipes for water-based drinks using fruit, vegetables and herbs. What a magnificent sound of a whale singing its song. There are over 90 different species of whales, dolphins and porpoises. But there's a lot more life living under the surface of the world's oceans. Some 200,000 species have been documented from the microscopic phytoplankton to giant 30 metre long blue whales. But scientists believe that's just a fraction of the total as we've not yet explored all the ocean depths. 
Our seas literally teem with a vast array of breathtaking life, from sharks, crabs, tube worms, squid, and multiple types of fish, to plants and other organisms. The seas account for just over 70% of the surface of our beautiful planet, which author Arthur C. Clarke always insisted shouldn't really be called planet Earth, but rather planet water. Some scientists believe life began in the deep sea around hydrothermal vents that generate chemicals and minerals in some kind of primordial cocktail that created life forms that ended up as, well, us and all the other wondrous living creatures sharing our common planet. No one knows for sure, but one fact we do know for sure, and that is that humans have been treating the oceans as dustbins for generations. We've thrown our garbage and other waste materials, such as mercury and DDT, from cities, factories and industries, tankers and ships, and sewage waste directly into the oceans, with hardly a thought for the consequences. Runoffs from agriculture have poured fertilisers, petroleum and pesticides in the seas. Oil spills over the years have caused massive disasters to marine ecosystems, while our beaches and seashores are awash with devastating plastic waste. Research from Plymouth University has found that close to 700 species of marine life are facing extinction due to the increase of plastic pollution. Horrible as it sounds, the harsh reality is that plastic particles are in the air we breathe, the food we eat and the water we drink. Of course, it isn't plastic per se that's the problem. Plastic has many benefits. It's sterile, it's durable, and once we've done with it, it can be turned into something new. But the question is, how can we keep these benefits while keeping plastic out of nature? And that, I guess, is very much about waste management and ending the current situation where what plastic doesn't go to landfill ends up getting dumped in nature. Who better then to help us better understand the state of the oceans than Sarah Cooley, Director of Climate Science at Ocean Conservancy? A chemist by training and a life force by nature who'd rather be in the ocean or on it in a boat, Sarah's wake-up call came the day when she realised the ocean was full of chemicals, both natural and man-made, and there was still a whole lot left to learn about Earth's final frontier. She went to graduate school to become an ocean carbon cycle expert. And along the way, she learned how to talk to people about science and found she had a knack for making ocean issues clear to all types of people. As Director of Climate Science at Ocean Conservancy, Sarah combines her science and communication skills to educate and engage decision makers and stakeholders from every political perspective on ocean acidification, identifying ways that different groups can take action. Her goal is to show that this issue is relevant and impacting people today in order to gain long-term support to protect communities, cultures and livelihoods from the threat of ocean acidification. Sarah, thank you very much for uh, joining us here at uh, Blue Water for our um, uh, podcast. Um, 
could you maybe tell me something about who you are and what it is that you do? Sure. Thank you for having me, David. Uh, my name is Sarah Cooley. I am uh, located in Washington, D.C. I work at Ocean Conservancy. Um, I am the director of climate science there. Um, I have a Ph.D. in marine science with an emphasis on ocean carbon cycling. Um, and I've been involved in the nonprofit world since about 2014. But before that, I was involved in sort of university research on ocean uh, climate change and ocean uh, impacts from uh, climate change. So that's kind of um, how I'm how I'm oriented. I, I I see myself as a natural scientist, but I work in a nonprofit advocacy role to help develop better evidence-based policies that care for the ocean and for the people who depend on it. My role at Ocean Conservancy is currently uh, the Director of Climate Science. And before that, I was the Director of the Ocean Acidification Program. And what this really means is that it's my job to really understand the state of knowledge on ocean impacts from human activities, from climate change, from other human activities as well, and really rolling that up and sharing it with people who aren't necessarily science experts. And the idea is that by helping translate the science and helping uh, really synthesize it in a way that is comprehensible to people who aren't science experts, we can make sure that policies that care for the ocean um, are really based on evidence and the best available science, really to make sure that those benefits from the ocean now and in the future are maintained. Um, so I really take a multifaceted view of how humans interact with the oceans. So just before we get into um, the climate crisis and the challenges that is posing to the oceans and obviously ultimately to ourselves as human beings, as guardians on the planet, what was it that brought you into this particular area in the first place? Is, it, is, is conservancy something that has always fascinated you from a very young age? You know, interestingly, I never saw myself as an environmentalist or a conservation-focused person from the beginning. Um, I always uh, have enjoyed the outdoors. Um, I have always been interested in being outside more than in. Um, when I went to college, I got a degree in chemistry because it just made sense to me. It was kind of like Legos fitting together. I could see the little molecules fitting together. And I really enjoyed that. It made just very clear sense to me. At the same time, I spent a lot of time um, with our college's sailing club. And so I was out sailing on the weekends competitively. And um, as I came to the end of college, a lot of my, my uh, classmates were looking at working in the pharmaceutical industry or, um, you know, kind of taking their abilities into sort of uh, chemical engineering. And I never really saw myself fitting into that sphere. I just kind of, it just left me cold. And plus, I wasn't that great at organic chemistry. I was much better at inorganic chemistry. So I, I had this sort of flash realization that, oh my gosh, there are chemicals in the ocean. <laughs> and I could study those. <laughs> because um, I really did enjoy and still do enjoy the academic learning environment. And I felt like I wasn't finished with learning. So I really uh, wanted to continue my formal education. And that sort of realization that there's chemicals in the ocean and good Goodness gracious, humans have changed them, and there's a lot to know about that. 
that was really the moment that it hit me that I could go to graduate school, stay in touch with the environment that I loved so much and use my sort of academic learning. And at the same time, I was always really interested in communicating and, you know, writing well. I'm an avid reader. And so getting the point across well is important to me. And so that was a theme going through my education as well. And then ultimately, it's all come together into a role where I can use the quantitative science training, I can uh, speak for the environment that I love so much, and I can uh, work hard at helping others understand with good communications. So this kind of braids together all of my interests. So uh, you mentioned, obviously, that you have a love for the sea because of that came from your sailing experience. And you also mentioned that, you know, the chemicals in the seas now that exist from a lot of the pollution that is being found nowadays as a consequence of dumping plastics and other nasty stuff in the seas uh, all around the planet. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think are the greatest, from your perspective, both as a human being, a mother and a scientist, are the greatest challenges facing our citizens on the planet today? Sure. I think the biggest challenge, if we kind of zoom all the way out, um, is how do we live gently while we improve everyone's quality of life? Right now, our current approach is really causing a lot of waste and damage. Um, as you mentioned, you know, we have, have single-use plastics escaping into the environment, clogging up the oceans, blowing down the road. We have carbon dioxide from the atmosphere penetrating into the ocean and creating ocean acidification. And we have widespread planetary heating from those greenhouse gases. So that's just a lot of waste that we're pumping out in our pursuit of comfort, safety, fulfillment. But if we look at the examples of the millennia of indigenous peoples that have come before, there are ways to live well while not using up our surroundings. And I think that's the challenge that uh, the current global society has to grapple with. Um, and I think from there, other solutions will follow, you know, solutions to the plastic waste crisis and solutions to the climate crisis, you know, and solutions to health crises that we're seeing emerge. I think those things will kind of follow from a collective shift, embrace of this, this idea of how do we actually improve everyone's quality of life meaningfully and, and more equitably while we're having a lighter footprint on the earth. So are you positive or negative uh, about the ability that we have as human beings, having got ourselves into this mess in the first place, uh, about our ability to change things for the better going forward? I'm positive about our ability. I think I have to be um, just because I, I don't think I'd be able to keep on pushing every day on working on environmental causes without feeling positive. You know, I think that humans can do so much and we are naturally a community-minded species. So I think one of our challenges to, to kind of maintaining uh, a solutions focus is that we need to expand our notion of community. Um, in sort of prehistory, you know, humans and, and uh, you know, pre-humans had very small societies to think about and to uh, look out for. But because of our interconnected world now, 
our society is much, much bigger. And that's really hard for us to comprehend. But I do think that it's a challenge, but it's also a benefit because that means that we also have the connectivity and the energy coming from billions of humans on the earth. And we can now get everybody's ideas aired because of our global communications abilities. Um, so I do think that I'm, I'm positive because there are so many people, there are so many good ideas, um, and, and we, we, we care for each other. We, we look out for those who have less. And I think that those are the values that can really uh, be drawn from and help us um, maintain positive uh, movement and um, do right by everyone and the earth. I guess this is a very unfair question, so I'm going to apologize in advance for it. But if there was any one single thing that uh, you'd like to see happen right now to move mm -hmm. us towards that sl slightly better world than we have already today, what would that one thing be? Mm, this is the magic wand question. If I had a magic wand, what would I do? How about I think a wizard stick? Would that work? I love it. I love it. Um, I think if I, if I had that, I have to go back to my sort of carbon cycle scientist roots and say, I would love to see immediate direct action to curb greenhouse gas emissions. There's so much momentum in the global system coming from heating and the carbon dioxide excess that's in the atmosphere. And that's really affecting um, you know, the ocean, plants on land, animals on land, uh, where they're located, how many of them there are, <laughs> how well they're doing. And I think, so that would be like the first order of business. And then maybe the second order of business would be, um, you know, I'd probably work with a, a social scientist to actually uh, try to um, develop some kind of, you know, collective incentivization for us to move to this more sustainable way of being rather than kind of, you know, benefits for some and, and not others. Of course, a lot of the things that have been coming out about what is happening in our oceans and seas are quite scary things. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the death of corals, um, of which all sea life are really dependent upon, ultimately. How can we inspire, do you think, people as individuals to actually start taking concrete actions, even ones as simple as carrying around a single-use plastic bottle with them rather than buying uh, a throwaway bottle? Mm -hmm. I think um, I've seen the greatest success in my own work with connecting with people uh, in terms of their local concerns and their values um, and identifying, hey, you know what, we, we all care about this same thing. And from there, uh, show how better action can just slot into somebody's life. It doesn't require completely throwing out everything we know about life and starting over. You know, what we what we we need to do is a mixture of individual actions, you know, like single use uh, eliminating single use plastics, but also working together for these larger scale actions that are going to for example, uh move our energy grids to more renewable energy and, and create sort of new regulations that, that really promote that instead of prohibit that. And so all of these things are sort of incremental improvements upon the way that we're living now. And I think that showing people that this is a step-by-step -step process, urgent is great, but you know overnight is not realistic, and recognize that there is a pathway and we can continue to grow. Um, I think that's something that I've seen uh, being very, very successful 
um, showing, for example, elected leaders in the United States that we can take beginning action on acidification by investing in ocean observing systems, research, understanding how these changes affect human communities, and then at the same time, working towards the bigger goals of improving water quality, of cutting carbon dioxide um, emissions to the atmosphere, um, and really showing that this is a progression. We didn't get here overnight, and we won't get out overnight. Although I would love that magic wand. Okay, I promise, Sarah, if I find that magic wand or wizard stick lying around, I'll make sure one is whizzed your way instantly. Please do. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> uh, I'm also actually kind of thinking whether you have any good example that you'd like to share with us of what you think has been a really positive uh, step forward towards um, dealing with the climate crisis that we're, we're facing. Mm -hmm. I've got to say, I think the Paris Agreement, even though, uh, you know, those of us in the business kind of knock it because it wasn't an overnight step change, I do think the Paris Agreement was really a watershed moment. Um, this was, it's, it's, it's voluntary, and we have nations around the world that are getting behind this saying like, yes, we need to change our ways. We're going to work on this together. Um, so I really do think that that is, that is just a, a, such an inspiring moment because sometimes uh, getting top-down action can be so hard uh, because it requires really uh, changing the thinking of big, big systems. And when we're talking about big government systems, wow, that can be really hard to change. But I do think that the fact that, that the world is pointing in the right direction with the Paris Agreement is really um, something that we need to um, celebrate for what it is. It's really impressive. And where do you think the change is going to be driven from? I mean, is it something that's going to come politically or is it something that can come from uh, the corporate world, or is it something that is going to have to be a grassroots movement of the people's desire to change something bad for something that is better? All of these sectors are important. Um, I think that certainly we've seen the power of individuals, uh, you know, calling out corporations on social media for bad behavior. Um, that can really drive some some fundamental change. Having, uh, so, you know, civil society recognize that, yeah, you know what, we are part of the solution, but we are not completely the problem. Um, yes, we need to look at industry as well. Um, I think industry leaders are recognizing that the current way of operating is not a sustainable way. And if they wish to continue having successful businesses decades into the future, it's time to be rethinking how they're doing the business. And I think that's true for governments as well. But I think that governments and industry can often get a little bit tied up in thinking about how big the challenge is. And so that's why I have um, always advocated for these sort of stepwise growth. And so it has to be a really long game that we're thinking about here. But I think we can do it. I mean, it's just a level of vision and collective aspiration that the global community has not had to do before, except in the pursuit of like personal wealth, industrialization, you know, uh, human development. So this is a little bit of a different challenge, but I think it's related enough that I think we can get there. I have to say that one of the best things that ever happened to me as a young kid was reading Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. And that set me off on a track uh, that I think and hope <laughs> I've followed reasonably well all through my life. So I'm a keen environmentalist myself. What was the book, do you think, that kind of 
sparked that aha moment for you? Oh, great question. I definitely think that Silent Spring was um, pretty foundational for me as well. I read that when I was a student and sort of early in my student years, and it definitely stuck with me. And I've read so much on um, science and and sort of how how uh, the world fits together. It would be hard to point that point to one thing anymore, but I definitely think that I agree that uh, Silent Spring is a big one. Lately, I've been reading a little bit more about um, justice and environmental justice and how structural obstacles, you know, that the sort of science speak for like, you know, roadblocks in uh, in society and in government that uh, prevent us from doing better I've been reading a lot about that kind of thing. And I think that's been very much influencing my thinking about how do we include everyone who needs to be included, which is pretty much everyone when you're talking about the fate of the planet. How do we properly include uh, people's viewpoints, people's ways of knowing, and um, come up with a way of uh, proceeding forward uh, in human development in a way that's gonna be inclusive? So that's been that's been kind of on my mind lately. So you're a scientist. Do you think the general public, and I'm not trying to demean them in any way at all, but you know, not all of us are scientists. I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think most of the rest of us who aren't scientists get what it is that you're talking about when you flag up the problems that we are facing? Um, I think some people do. Um, I think that there, so there's a a study that we're doing right now and we're doing a lot of, uh, structured interviews with regular folks who aren't ocean scientists, who aren't maybe even ocean, uh, you know, uh, or like climate activists, right? They're just ocean lovers. And people are definitely noticing the uh, increase in ocean pollution from plastics and waste, um, you know, over their lifetimes. Uh, People are noticing changes in storminess, storm patterns and intensity in their lifetimes. People's lived experiences are, are absolutely showing them that humans have caused a change in a very short time and that change is accelerating. So I think the challenge for us scientists is to actually relate the, the hard-boiled numeric evidence with the way that people interact with their environment and show them like, we have another way of knowing. You have this way of knowing about your environment, but we also have this other way of knowing. And we know that this is getting worse from this other way of knowing. Our ways of knowing are compatible here. We have some suggestions on how we can uh, make different choices and then start having a vibrant conversation about what those options would do for everyone involved, whether they really are the best options or whether there are other options that come from other ways of knowing. You know, certainly we can think about how fisheries populations have been managed over, you know, millennia by indigenous groups. There is a very different way of managing fish populations that comes from sort of the scientific tradition. There are ways to uh, come to a, a middle ground on how to manage those fisheries using both ways of knowing. So we do have some success stories in terms of how we bring together uh, different types of information and different types of uh, decision-making um, to come up with a better future. Um, and I think it, it really, uh, you know, is important for scientists to fully embrace the fact that 
almost no decision ever anywhere was made purely because of science. That's a very interesting thought <laughs> and really deep food for thought as well, um, Sarah. But I have a question. Uh, with Absolutely. all that knowledge that you have and sure. uh, based on all the knowingness you have uh, uh, about what's happening in our oceans, does that ever stop you or make you pause before diving into that beautiful looking stretch of water to go for a swim? Not at all. Not at all. Um, I, I do find, however, when I'm in the water and I see some kind of piece of trash, I will, uh, I will swim after it and I will collect it. And sometimes I get a little wetter than I had expected in doing so. <laughs> but I feel, I feel pretty, pretty good about that because um, a couple of days ago, uh, my children were out playing in the neighborhood with other children. We don't live near the water, but we live along a, a creek, a waterway. And um, they just started picking up trash that had washed into the waterway after big rain. And they were collecting it. And I was like, I'm rubbing off. Hooray. <laughs> so it's easy. It's easy to get involved. It's easy to make a difference. Um, we just have to recognize that, like, there's all different sizes of differences that we need to be making. And different folks have different abilities to uh, work on those different size solutions, right? People with more privileges and may be able to kind of swing for the fences and go for really big changes and then folks who are more affected by the damage and have less scope to you know take a day off and go pick up trash maybe they just make different choices about you know consumer goods that they they have direct you know purchasing power over um so it takes all of us thank you sarah that was just absolutely brilliant i really enjoyed talking to you it's been a huge delight and i should look forward to reading some of your papers going forward to try to catch up with that startling uh, insight into the state of our oceans that you've provided me and as you continue your research well thank you so much david this was a lot of fun and um, i look forward to uh hearing more about how you're um putting your own uh company to work to make a big difference it's been lovely thank you thank you thank you so much sarah cooley director of climate science at ocean conservancy speaking over a Zoom call from her home in the United States. And yes, for those of you Zoom users who use a background image, Sarah's showed a beautiful ocean theme. As Sarah made so clear, we have no time to waste to tackle the many ocean issues like climate change and ocean acidification. And we all need to become ocean heroes because by investing time and effort in the health of our oceans, we're also investing in the health of our planet and the future we leave coming generations. We can no longer take for granted that everything in nature is free. We can no longer let human activities degrade our oceans by harming marine life and undermining coastal communities. Blue Water has made its stance totally clear by signing up for the United Nations Clean Seas Pledge to turn the tide on plastic. Acutely aware that only 9% of plastic is recycled and that around 13 million tonnes of plastic enter our oceans every year, we've made it our mission to come up with planet-friendly water purification technologies, products and solutions that help end the need for single-use plastic bottles. And every single day, 
Our solutions help people and businesses avoid using plastic bottles while staying properly hydrated as well as also contributing to the efforts to collect the plastic littering our seashores. You can discover more about our vision and mission at Blue Water at www.bluewatergroup.com. We've reached the end of this Planet Water podcast. I hope all of you out there enjoyed meeting with Dr. Sarah Cooley, Director of Climate Science at Ocean Conservancy, and hearing her really incredible insights into the states of our ocean. You know, I'm a grandfather of three granddaughters and two grandsons, so the whole subject of clean water, sport, and planetary well-being is absolutely vital to me. This has been Planet Water, brought to you by Blue Water. And this is Dave Noble saying, stay safe and properly hydrated. Talk to you soon. If you've enjoyed listening to Planet Water, please help us spread the word by reviewing and rating this podcast. It'll help us keep focus on making great episodes going forward. If you have a comment or a question you'd like answered, email me at planetwater at bluewatergroup.com and I'll get back to you just as quickly as I can. That email again is planetwater at bluewatergroup.com Thanks for listening to Planet Water. Please remember to always talk to a doctor about your hydration needs. We're not doctors and we don't provide medical or health-related advice. Please remember as well that the individual opinions expressed here are just opinions and nothing more. Thank you.